Um, we're going to be reading from 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. Um, we have a pretty lengthy passage, so I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to ask you to remain seated, and the words will be on the screen. At that time, the servant of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Jump into chapter 25, starting with verse 1. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We believe again that you speak to us through it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in the hearts and minds of every single one of us. I pray that nobody would leave without being convicted of who you are and what you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, When I was in seminary, I had a classmate who was in a very similar life stage as me. 
Like me, he, was, uh, he worked for about 10 years before entering ministry. Like me, he was married with kids. And like me, he was commuting almost 100 miles from home to school um, a couple times a week. So like me, he was crazy. And since most of the seminary students came right out of college and were either single or newly married with kids, we didn't have as much in common with them. So the two of us shared a special bond, and we tried to encourage each other when we felt overwhelmed with, with school and family and work, and especially when we feel guilty because we weren't spending enough time with our kids, and we knew that our wives were drowning in diapers and struggling with loneliness. And we reminded each other that this was for a short time, that it would all be worth it. In just a few years, things would be different. We would be done with school. Uh, we would see our kids uh, more normally than, than we were, and, and that we'd have full-time jobs as pastors serving at a church. And that was the goal, and that's what kept us going. But during my final year of seminary, after winter vacation, when all the students returned for spring semester, I noticed that I didn't see my friend on campus. I didn't think much of it the first week of school. But by the second week, when uh, we got to Friday, I remember I started getting worried for him because, I mean, it's really, really hard to recover from seminary after you've missed the first two weeks of school. And I tried reaching out to him over phone, over email, but I couldn't get a hold of him. And I was wondering what was going on. But after about five weeks, he calls me and he tells me that he and his wife are getting a divorce. In fact, over the Christmas break, they had gotten into such a big fight that his wife called the police on him and was trying to put a restraining order on him. Now, there was no violence, but that was her way of expressing her anger with him and their life circumstances. He eventually quit seminary, he quit his job at church, and he got a divorce. And when I was talking to him about it, he obviously felt like he lost everything that mattered to him. He told me that he could never imagine this happening when he left the corporate world to start ministry. It wasn't supposed to end this way. Have you ever been there? Have you experienced such massive disappointment or the loss of something that was so important to you that you wonder how things could have ever gotten so bad? Now imagine for the Jews collectively as a nation, as God's chosen people, This profound sense of disappointment and disbelief is what they must have felt as they watch an absolute horror, this unbelievable palace that Solomon erected, and this temple that that represented God's presence with them as they're watching this get burned down to the ground. Now this morning, we're going to look at this tragic event in Jewish history when the kingdom of Judah is absolutely decimated. But before we do that, I think it's helpful to go back to the beginning when we started our sermon series on God and Kings. And recall how things were when God first establishes his set of kings over his chosen people. And I think in order to actually appreciate and really understand how truly devastating the events of today's passage are, we need to appreciate how good things were. Now, today's sermon is the final sermon in this series that we started six months ago. For the past six months, we went through through 1 and 2 Samuel, we went through 1 and 2 Kings, and we saw God raising up kings for his people Israel. We started with King Saul, Israel's first king. And then we moved on to King David, whom God calls a man after his own heart. In fact, God is so pleased with David that in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that his throne will last forever, his kingdom will never end. And we begin to see this promise being fulfilled because under King David, Israel begins to experience a time of peace and security, something they haven't experienced in decades. 
You might recall for years, Israel was constantly harassed and terrorized by the Philistines. You might remember Big Goliath. But finally, under King David, Israel's military strength, Israel's dominance is being established throughout the entire region as they're experiencing victory after victory. The Israelites are beginning to see just how good and just how prosperous things can be, how good life can be when kings obey and follow God. After King David, we moved on to King Solomon, David's son. King Solomon was an extraordinary man, a man of exceptional wisdom. And under King Solomon, the dominance and the glory and the splendor of Israel go to a whole new level as the palace is built and as the temple of God is built. The wisdom and the wealth of King Solomon were almost legendary during this time. So much so that we're told that in 1 Kings 10, that the Queen of Sheba, who lives 1,400 miles away from Jerusalem, which is modern-day Yemen, has heard of the wisdom of King Solomon and the splendor of his kingdom. This is before the days of modern technology, and yet 1,400 miles away, she's heard of Solomon. And the stories about him and his wisdom are so extravagant, are so, are so impressive, that the Queen of Sheba needs to go see for herself if this is actually true. Can a king actually be that wise? Can a kingdom be actually that glorious? And so she makes this long journey, which would have, take, would have taken several months, and at the end of her visit, this is what she has to say, 1 Kings chapter 10. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. She says that the stories that she's been hearing about Solomon's wisdom and his kingdom, which seem too good to be true, actually didn't do justice because it's even better and it's even more impressive in person. And one of the reasons we're given this account of an outsider like the Queen of Sheba making the long journey and seeing for herself is for us to get an objective perspective on just how glorious Israel was at that time. An outsider's perspective. So impressive, in fact, that this pagan queen can't help but give praise to the God of Israel. She says in 1 Kings 10 verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you. As a queen, she's seen enough kingdoms to know that the kind of kingdom that Solomon has built and that the kind of wisdom with which Solomon rules is impossible without divine favor. It's like when my daughter Karis used to do projects in sixth grade that that involved arts and crafts. And I come home at the end of the day really excited to see what she put together. And after just one look, I was like, oh, come on. I I know exactly who did this. Mom did this. Maybe right? like, blessed be your artistic mother who has done this work for you. I mean, it was just too good. My daughter couldn't have done this without her artistic mom. And the queen of Sheba says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you because everything she sees in the kingdom has divine fingerprints all over it. No kingdom gets this glorious. No kingdom gets this beautiful. No kingdom gets this amazing without the favor of God. And that's where Israel was. That's what Israel had. That was their reality. But after King Solomon, things start to go downhill for Israel and its kings. After King Solomon, around 930 BC, we're told that the kingdom is split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
the northern kingdom made up of, of the 10 tribes, of the 10 of the 12 tribes is called Israel. The southern kingdom made up of two of the tribes is called Judah. And for the next 200 years, Israel and Judah are constantly under threat of attack by their surrounding enemies, by the, by the superpowers of, of the region, and their very existence is continually threatened. And during this time, both Israel and Judah cycle through multiple kings, and each new king, we're told, is worse than the king before it. Over and over again, we're told that the kings fall into idolatry and they lead their people into wickedness. And this is the heart of the problem. This is one of the main themes of the book of 2 Kings. The wickedness of the kings as they turn to idolatry and as they turn the hearts of an entire nation away from the true God, Yahweh, and into pagan worship. And it gets to the point where eventually God's patience runs out and God needs to punish his people for their sins. And it happens. 722 BC, the northern kingdom, Israel, is attacked by the Assyrians and Israel falls. And we're told clearly that this is God's doing. God is punishing his people for their sins through the hands of the Assyrians. And what the king of Assyria does is he takes all the Jews living in Israel, except the poorest of the poor, he takes these Jews in Israel and he he deports them, he sends them out into Babylon And then he takes these other people that have been conquered and he puts them into into Israel. And so what you have is this mix of the poorest of Jews with these these Gentiles that have come and and are cohabitating. And they're living there, they're dwelling there, and they're working there. And this is the reason why if you get into the Gospels and you hear about this hatred that exists between the pure Jews and the Samaritans, and it's because these Samaritans were the offspring of what happens in 722 BC when the Jews are deported and these Gentiles are brought in and the Samaritans are the offspring of of this mix. And so they were considered mutts. They were considered um, impure mixed dogs. And the fall of Israel in 722 BC is a traumatic event in the history of Israel, and we see the repercussions of this to this day. And in fact, there's this whole question of the 10 tribes of Israel that got deported. Where are they? Because they were never brought back in. Where, did, where in the world did they go? But it gets worse because 140 years later in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah follows the same path as Israel. The kings of Judah are just as foolish as the kings of Israel were. The kings of Judah were told repeatedly turn to idolatry and they turn the hearts of their nation against God. And eventually God's patience runs out and he punishes them for their sins, this time through the hands of the Babylonians. And today's passage, the passage that we read, describes for us what it was like when the Babylonians attack and destroy everything in Jerusalem, the most important city in Judah. Now, do you remember where you were on September 11, 2001, when the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center um, in New York were attacked by terrorists? I remember, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Um, I remember I was driving to work until I was listening to Kiss FM. I think it may have been Rick D's um, in the morning. And as I'm listening, um, the DJ makes an announcement about a plane that crashed into the World Trade Center. And even as the DJ was, was making the announcement, you could tell he was confused. It didn't sound right. And what kind of a freak accident was this? What kind of a plane was this? You know, was this a commercial plane? If it was, what was it doing flying so low um, in Manhattan that it would crash into this building? And as people are 
are, are trying to figure out what's going on, we hear about a second plane that crashed into the other building. And all this was so strange, nobody knew what to make of it. Um, was the news of the second plane really the first plane? Um, I remember once I got into the office, they had this big screen and the news was on. And we were like, trying to, we were like is that actually like animation? And because it just didn't seem real. And I'm thinking to myself, what are the chances of not just one plane, but two planes crashing into buildings right next to each other? I mean, this is crazy. And I don't know at what point the government connected the dots and realized that this was not an accident, but instead a coordinated terrorist attack, maybe it was 30 minutes or an hour after it happened. But for the average American, we would have never imagined it was a terrorist attack. It's almost like that category of terrorism didn't exist for us until September 11th. And in fact, as the news started to confirm that this was indeed a terrorist attack, I don't think Americans knew what to do with it. Because we could not believe that America could actually be attacked on our own soil. America was too strong. America was too safe. Our security is way too sophisticated to be breached. So we thought. But not only that, Manhattan, of all places, is one of the most important places in the U.S., Manhattan is the epicenter of the financial markets. Broadway is there. The Empire State Building is there. And the the latest fashion trends come out of there. Hundreds of different ethnicities live and work there side by side. Manhattan is way too important of a city for our government to allow something like that to happen. And I imagine that's exactly how the Jews felt about Jerusalem. Solomon's palace was there. The temple was there. Life flourished in Jerusalem. It's way too important of a place for us to allow anything like that to happen. Last year, I went to visit the September 11th Memorial and Museum in New York. And visiting the actual site where the buildings crumbled and seeing the remains of one of the fire trucks that was crushed reminded me of just how horrific that day really was. But one of the most powerful and chilling experiences of that day was when I walked through one of the areas of the museum where they were replaying the interviews that had been done with eyewitnesses, with people who were actually there on the day of the attack. And as you're listening, you could hear the dismay and the shock in their voices as they're describing what they saw, planes crashing into a building and people jumping out of the windows from the 100th floor because the fire in the building was so hot, it was a better option to jump out of the building. And then for, the, and for them to see the buildings crumble and people running frantically, literally in opposite directions because there's so much debris, they, couldn't, they didn't know which way was out and some people were running straight into their death. It was absolute mayhem. And listening to the eyewitnesses retell the details of that horrific day was powerful. Jeremiah was a prophet who was there when Jerusalem was destroyed. After having deported 10,000 of Israel's officers, warriors, and skilled laborers, King Nebuchadnezzar sends his captain Nebuzaradan to destroy Jerusalem. Verses 8 and 9 describe for us what took place. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. Now, unfortunately, those two verses don't capture in any sense the anguish and the sorrow and even the disillusionment that would have swept over an entire nation, which is why we have the book of Lamentations. Lamentations 
most argue, was written by Jeremiah after he witnesses the destruction of Jerusalem. This was by far, the destruction of Jerusalem was by far the most devastating event in Judah's history. And so an entire book is devoted to lamenting over it. The Book of Lamentations is the equivalent of the September 11th Museum and Memorial. It's the Jewish version. And what's interesting is in the Hebrew Bible, the Book of Lamentations isn't called Lamentations. We didn't just um, take the Hebrew Bible name of Lamentations and just put the English word for it. In the Hebrew Bible, Lamentations is called Ekha, which is simply the first word in the first verse in the first chapter of the Book of Lamentations. And that first word is Ekha. It's translated how. In the Hebrew Bible, the Book of Lamentations is called how. Doesn't that say it all? How? How? How in the world could King Solomon's palace and the temple that stood for 400 years be destroyed? We don't have anything that's over 250 years old in this country. How could a palace and a temple that stood for 400 years be destroyed? How could all of Judah's finest men and women, officers, skilled laborers, be shipped off to Babylon to become slaves? How in the world did the Jews and the kingdom of Judah get to this place? How did we get here? How? Listen to just one of several of Jeremiah's lament from Lamentations 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughters of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Jeremiah is literally getting sick to his stomach as he walks around and he sees the bloodshed, he sees the debris, and he sees the devastation all around him. Jerusalem is decimated. The glory and splendor that the Queen of Sheba, who travels 1,400 miles to see, is now completely gone. Nothing but ashes. And if we were to go back in time... And tell King Solomon that one day everything that he had built would be destroyed and that the entire nation would be deported to a foreign country, he would think you're crazy. He would never believe you. And it's not because powerful enemies can't rise up, attack, and take over other nations. He's wise enough to know that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But what would have been unthinkable is that God would allow the temple to be destroyed. The temple was a place where God's glory and God's presence were most fully present. The temple is where God met with his people. God would never allow his temple to be destroyed. And just like none of us would have believed if someone told us prior to September 11th that a terrorist attack would take place in the middle of Manhattan that would kill almost 3,000 civilians, injure over 6,000 people, and cost over $10 billion in infrastructure and property damage, nobody would have believed it. No way. Not in Manhattan. Not in this day and age, not with our security. So what are we supposed to learn from today's passage? Let me give you three things to reflect on. And the first is this. We need to take sin seriously. We need to take sin seriously. Because if we don't, sin will absolutely destroy us. I think that what's so pervasive in churches today, and and I confess, even in my own heart, is that there's a casualness to the way we think about sin. It's almost like our sins don't really bother us. We can sin and we're just not bothered by it. 
And I think part of the reason for that is because we don't necessarily feel the effects of sin immediately. When you have hatred in your heart towards another person, you don't feel the impact of that, of those desires or those feelings outwardly right away. When you look at pornography on your phone or on your computer, you don't experience the repercussion of that sin immediately. And so we get desensitized to sin. We become casual about our sins, and we return to those sins over and over again until it's too late. Because before you know it, your hatred has led to bitterness in your heart, and you're doing everything you can to cut off that relationship or somehow punish that person. Looking casually on pornography has led to an addiction, and you're completely enslaved. It's changing you. It's the only thing you can think about. It changes the way you look at others, and you hate what it's doing to you. Now, in today's passage, God doesn't allow Israel and Judah to be taken over by their enemies at the first sign of idolatry. This is a slow and gradual process. God sends prophets every step along the way to the kings and to the people to warn them to wake up. Turn from your sins and repent. Don't be so casual, so nonchalant about your sins, about turning away from God. Are there sins that we're being too casual about? What are those sins for you that just don't bother you? Are there sins that we just, they don't phase us? The second point for us to consider is this. The Christian life is never a straight path. The Christian life is never a straight path. And here's what I mean by that. I think many people who chose to, I think many people who choose to give their lives to Jesus and follow him, imagine maybe subconsciously that life will all of a sudden get much better. Um, There will be less heartache and disappointment in life and whatever sins I'm dealing with will somehow maybe magically go away. Marriage will become easier or more generally, God will give me the things that I want. And the way you can tell whether or not you've been subconsciously expecting this is by how surprised you are when you experience suffering and disappointment in your life. How surprised are you when things don't go your way? How surprised are you when somebody gets sick? How surprised are you when something that you really wanted, you don't get? When the Jews watched their city get burned down and when they were getting deported to Babylon, they were probably wondering how in the world God could allow something like this to happen. Now, like what John Piper says about the Christian life, it's not on the screen, but it's on your bulletin, it's on the front. And here's what he says about the Christian life. He says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. The third point for us to consider is this. God offers us freedom from enslavement. God offers us freedom from enslavement. And I absolutely love how the story of 2 Kings ends. In the closing verses of this book, 
the last four verses of the last chapter of this book, the way we're going to finish off this series, what we find out is King Jehoiachin comes back into the story. Now remember back in, 20, back in chapter 24, we read that when Babylon attacks Jerusalem, King Jehoiachin is arrested and deported to Babylon. And we would have naturally expected that we would have forgotten about him afterwards. That's the end of the story. But listen to how the story ends. 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, this is Nebuchadnezzar's son, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. In spite of how bad things got for the Jews, in spite of God punishing the Jews for their sins, God wants them to know that God wants them to know through this unmerited act of grace that is being showed to their king that they are not forgotten and that yet, even in the midst of their sins, even in the midst of their deportation, grace abounds. King Jehoiachin is graciously freed from prison. The king of Babylon speaks kindly to him and he gives him a prominent seat at his dining table. He takes his prisoner's outfit off of him and he gives him new clothes. And Jehoiachin is provided for the rest of his life. Now, I'll tell you, you know, the, the burden of a, pre, of, a, of a pastor, of a preacher is, how do you finish your sermon with that final story that just sums it up and just points to the gospel? I can't come up with a better story than that. I mean, that story wraps it all up. That story is a picture of the gospel and what Jesus offers all of us. The thing is, the reality is many of you this morning may feel in some way that you're enslaved to some power or some force. Of, maybe you feel enslaved to this identity that either you've placed upon yourself because you give in to certain sins and that's who you are, or maybe because of sins that have been committed against you. It affects you and you feel like that's how, that's, those are your outer garments. That's your identity. But Jesus speaks kindly to you. He takes off your prisoner's outfit, whatever label, whatever title that you've placed upon yourself, whatever sins, this yoke of sin and this weight of sin that is on you, Jesus takes off and he puts a new robe. We're told it's the robe of righteousness and he covers you with it. He gives you a new identity and he invites you to his table. He says, take a seat, be my honored guest. I've said this before, but grace makes no sense. Grace makes no sense, which is why grace is so beautiful. Now, just a little while ago, we heard about this foster care campaign, and over the next few weeks, as Jason mentioned, we'll be hearing about different ways that we can get involved in the life of a foster child. And I've got a lot of kids, and the last thing I'm thinking about is getting involved with another child, but you know, I'm thinking about it. There's a role that all of us can play. And when you hear the story of Stephanie 
and the different people that was involved in her life, nobody would have, wow, what an amazing woman. Wow, the opportunity to, to demonstrate this unmerited grace towards others. I'm going to be thinking about that. I, I encourage you to join me. This morning, um, we're going to have an opportunity to experience what King Jehoiachin experienced um, with the Lord's Supper. Um, we do this because this is a reminder of the gospel. Um, this is the Lord's Supper. This is Jesus um, inviting those of us we, who consider ourselves to be slaves to sin, who were once slaves to sin. Uh, the bread represents the body of Jesus, and, and the, the juice and the wine represents the blood of Jesus. And it, and it reminds us of the gospel, and the gospel is that Jesus had to die. Um, just as, um, as the people of God were cast out for their sins, Jesus had to be cast out of Jerusalem, and he had to suffer and die on the cross in order for us to have a relationship with God. And if you've come to that place where you've confessed your need of Jesus, that you recognize that you have addictions, you have um, an enslavement to sin that you can never defeat on your own, that you've trusted in Jesus' work on the cross for you, this meal is for you. But if you haven't, we'd ask you to remain seated. I believe we have a couple prayers inside the bulletin. We'd ask you to consider that. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this story, King Jehoiachin experiencing free grace, once a prisoner for 37 years, a prisoner in Babylon, and yet graciously freed, and prisoner's outfits taken off, and a new outfit placed upon him, invited to come sit at the table of the king, and to eat, and to experience life. Thank you, Jesus, for offering that to us. Holy Spirit, help us to believe that at the core of who we are, that this is real. Jesus, you offer us new life. You offer us restoration. You offer us new beginnings. And I pray that every single one of us would experience that now. In Jesus' name, amen.